grateful for that. Well, today is Easter Sunday, in case any of you didn't remember that. Today is Easter Sunday, and it is a unique experience for the, for the Christian church. You know, it's, it's something to go to, like, where David is in El Salvador, and on the 4th of July, they don't have a celebration. We were down there once over the 4th of July, and it's like, well, are they going to have fireworks? And you go, well, what for? Well, it's not their day of liberation, <laughs> You know, while in the Christian church, in the, in the church of Jesus Christ, it is Easter Sunday and is celebrated all over the world except in countries that don't understand Christianity. So we are used to having this place, this time in which we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is truly a unique experience because not the, the whole world doesn't celebrate this day. Only Christians and those under a Christian influence celebrate Easter. So there is a resurrection, and we believe in the resurrection. There's a resurrection for all. It's just that there's ones that are going to be resurrected to eternal life and others to eternal separation from God. And so there is before us a resurrection and a relationship with Jesus Christ that is so important to us. So Easter speaks then to us of hope, and it brings hope into all of our lives because in Christ shall all be made alive. In Christ is eternal life. Inside of us is the life of eternity, the breath of life that God has given us. And should this body perish, we believe that it will live on for an eternity with Christ. That is the hope of the resurrection. So we are eternal beings. <laughs> you know? You, don't, you look like you've been around for an eternity. You know, turn to somebody. No, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. You heard that one where, you know, what is it? Two-thirds of uh, the world um, are, are, are um, no, one-third of the world is uh, a, a beautiful person. So look to the person on your right. Look to the person on your left. And you say, wow, that's me. That one-third is a beautiful person. <laughs> All right. Okay, it's Easter. All right, move on, Pastor. Um, so we are eternal beings, and we live with this hope of eternal life. And that is something that sustains us. When things are really difficult, when life is offering its greatest challenge, it's the life of Jesus Christ that comes that gives us this understanding of eternal life. So everything we believe about Jesus Christ... Everything we believe about what's in the Gospels, what's written about him and about his life, it all is, focuses upon and sits upon this one truth. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. If Jesus is not risen, then all of the truths and all of the things that we believe about Jesus Christ are not important. Some people believe that Christianity is about having a right relationship with people and giving us a good moral basis from which to operate our life. Well, it's not that. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that brings this to life. Jesus is the one that helps us become um, a Christian. He's the one who forgives us of our sins, but he is also the one who empowers us to live the Christian life. If we think that we can be a Christian without God's help, we've missed it. We need God's help 
to live the Christian life. We cannot save ourselves from our sins, and we cannot raise ourselves from the dead. <laughs> you, no matter how you try, you, you know, um, the great Gatsby decided that well, when he died, he was, gonna, he was going to be able to... Um, he was going to be able to raise himself from the dead. Well, it didn't work. So he's still in the grave. There's only one person who has risen from the dead, and that is Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, and, and this is his, his letter to the church at Corinth, and the Corinthians were having some doubts about this resurrection. He says, now let me ask you something profound yet troubling. If you became believers because you trusted in the proclamation that Christ is alive and risen from the dead, how can you let people say that there is no such thing as a resurrection? What was going on in the early church was that there were people who came to know Christ, came to be you know, Christians and in the church, but they were allowing people to speak in the church that there was no resurrection of the dead. And Paul says, this can't be. You can't let this happen. Well, it's okay that people would believe, but, you know, he doesn't have to be risen from the dead. Not true. I remember a pastor from one of the neighboring churches, this was back about 25 years ago, he said, well, you know, I don't believe in the virgin birth. It's just good enough that he came. And, well, and, and I was like, what? You, you know, I'm, I'm astounded that he would say such a thing that he didn't believe in the virgin birth. And then he would say, well, it isn't really necessary that Jesus rose from the dead, just that he died for our sins. I'm like, wait, wait no, no, you can't, you can't leave out those portions. You can't leave out certain segments. He either is what he says he is or he isn't. And Paul tells him, he says, if there is no resurrection, there is no living Christ. If Christ is dead, there is no living Christ. If Jesus is still in the grave... There is no one seated at the right hand of the Father praying for us. Jesus is alive and he ever intercedes for you. If Jesus is in the grave and he's dead, then he doesn't love us. Then his sacrifice is incomplete. For the completion of Christ and his death and his burial is the resurrection. What we lost in the Garden of Eden... Man died physically, man died spiritually. Jesus Christ came and paid the price so that we would live spiritually and we would live again physically. And Jesus came and he rose from the dead. Then he goes on here to the, um, to the Corinthians. He says, if there's no resurrection, there's no living Christ. And face it, there's no resurrection for Christ and everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. Everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. It's like it's all a fallacy. It's all a pretend. If Jesus is not alive, then all of this isn't true. Now, how does Paul know this? How is Paul so certain of, of all of this? Well, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he, bright light comes, he falls to the ground, and he's like, dead. And he hears this voice and he sees the risen Christ. And the risen Christ says to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks, the goads. Now, anybody know what, you know, um, 
when I was growing up on the farm, we had some, uh, I remember as a young, young boy, we had uh, a cow, we named her Shotgun. Okay? <laughs> Anybody want to know why? Because she could kick. <laughs> and I mean, if you went up behind that, if you, you had to approach this, this cow with very, very cautiously. Because even if you touched her, she'd kick and I mean, whenever you got kicked, she was, she was lightning with that, with that left hook, you know. <laughs> and we would put kickers on her. Well, in this, it's hard for you to kick against the goats, that there were oxen that would pull carts. And what happens is they would put a, a board behind the, the cart and would have little wooden sharp spikes sticking out. And so eventually, they would get the message that the more you kick, the more you get hurt. And so an oxen would learn not to kick against the goads. So it would learn not to kick against those little spikes. And Jesus tells Paul, it's hard for you to kick against this reality about Jesus, about myself, and about your relationship with God and what you think God is about. And, and, and Paul, it just kind of like the lights go on, you know, the light, Jesus Christ, goes on in his mind and he recognizes that this is Jesus, the very person that he, had been that he had been crucifying people, killing people for, and having their faith. The very person he watched be stoned to death, Stephen, had believed in. And now Jesus has an encounter with him. And he's writing to the church at Corinth, telling them, you can't let this happen. You can't let this happen that people tell you that there's no resurrection. Not only that, but we would be guilty of telling you a, a string of barefaced lies about God. If you don't believe in the resurrection, then we've been lying to you, and everything we've been telling you is just nothing but a bunch of lies. All these affidavits, and that's a religious, not a religious term, that's a legal term. What happens when you sign an affidavit? You are making a statement, and signing your name to it, it is a legal document saying, that this is how it happened, this is your testimony about a certain event, and you have signed it and it has been legally documented. They are saying that all of the affidavits, all of the people who believed in Jesus and saw Jesus alive after the crucifixion, that all of their testimonies, those legal documents, are lies too. Then go on, verse 16, it says, If corpses can't be raised, if the dead cannot be raised, as the King James Version, then Christ wasn't, because he was indeed dead. He was indeed dead, but he is alive. And we go on down, it says, If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few, for a few short years, it's all garbage. It's nothing. Christ didn't come just to inspire us to have a good life and have some good ideas. If, if that's all he came to, do, to give us, Paul says, we're a sorry lot. But the truth is this, that Christ has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> he is the first in a long legacy of all those who are going to leave the cemeteries. And each of the Gospels speak of the resurrection. Each of the Gospels speak about the life of Christ, the death of Jesus, and his resurrection. The truths were unfailing. The truth of his resurrection is reliable. 
the Romans. <laughs> the Romans and the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have done everything within their power to prove that Jesus wasn't risen from the dead. There were Roman guards at that, at that uh, tomb. The Roman um, seal was upon the tomb that he couldn't open it up. Do you, do you, have, a, do you have a picture of that? I had it in Sunday school. Um, there is, if, I'm, I'm making a plans, and we're going to go to Israel next summer. How about that? We'll do that? We're going to go on a trip to Israel? Why not? Ken's going to drive the bus, take a couple days, we're going to drive over. <laughs> this, is, this is what is considered Gordon's tomb, where uh, Gordon's the guy that, he's the one, this is his discovery. And uh, why they believe that this is the tomb that Jesus rose from is that on the left-hand side of the entrance, there's a Christian symbol. And then as in front of the, the tomb there, where there's like that little step, there's a little step there, that's a trough where the stone would have been placed in. And where that trough is, or where that step is, there is an indentation down in the trough. Now, the trough is, uh, you can see the wall, and then in front of the wall, you can see like a, 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 another wall, which is probably about three feet in front of the the, the back wall. And in that, there is about a foot wide trough and a stone, which was perfectly uh, oval and probably six feet tall, bigger than the, the entrance to the, uh, to, the, to the grave, was rolled in place and would have gone into that trough, would have gone into that trough and sat there so that one or, one, even one or two people couldn't have moved it. So whenever you're looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you're looking at the women going there to um, prepare the body of Jesus, you are looking at how that they are going to move that stone plus deal with the Roman soldiers plus deal with the seal that was put upon that stone that said the Roman government says you cannot move this stone. Okay? So... Early in the morning, John chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, early in the morning on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone was moved away from the entrance. Mary Magdalene is the lady that Jesus had cast seven demons out of. And she is the lady that had followed the disciples and followed Jesus and was very much a part of what Jesus was doing at that time. And she was moved. <laughs> moved, meaning she loved Jesus, she loved the disciples, and she, like the other disciples, like the disciples, believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but didn't understand that he had to die. And so she ran, when she got to the entrance of the tomb, she saw that the stone was rolled away, the seal was broken, and we don't, in different, part, different gospels, give us little bits and pieces. Now, John here only focuses on Mary Magdalene, but there were other women that came with her, as outlined in some of the other gospels. But John focuses on Mary because John, is, John and Mary are very similar. They are very much attached to Jesus. 
They are very much in love with Jesus, very much uh, uh, encouraged by him and touched by his ministry, touched by him. John is the disciple that laid his head upon Jesus' shoulder at the Last Supper. John is the one who had this connection with Jesus that he was just, he felt so close to him. And so at the tomb, Mary Magdalene runs ahead, she gets there, and she sees that the tomb, the stone is rolled away. What does she do? She runs back. She runs at once to Simon Peter and the other disciple. The other disciple is John, the writer. This one, the one that Jesus loved, meaning that he and Jesus, John and Jesus, had this very close. So there's John, who is the closest of the twelve. There's Peter, James, and John, who are the three closest of the, of the twelve. And they are in place there, and they want to... Um, uh, they want to see, you know, they were in this close relationship with Jesus. And so whenever the resurrection came, it was important for them to be there. So they took the master. Mary says, they've taken the master from the tomb. And we don't know where they've laid him. They don't have a thought. They don't have a clue about a resurrection. They are not expecting a resurrection. If we had seen what they had saw in the brutal beating of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the taking him from the grave, or from the, to, uh, from the cross, and laying him, putting these strips of clothes around him, if we had seen that horrific sight, we'd have never thought of a resurrection. We'd have never thought of a resurrection. You know, um, in the Passion, the movie The Passion. You look at that and, you know, some critics have said, well, they overplayed that. In reality, Isaiah, the prophet, says that his back would have been like a plowed field, that there would not be one piece of flesh left unturned. So the crucifixion of Jesus and the scourging of Jesus were horrific. And these disciples, Mary with them would have been very much aware of this <laughs> crucifixion and this body that was totally destroyed and wrecked by beatings and the scourgings and, and dying there upon the cross. And so when she sees that the, the tomb is empty, she feels that somebody had to steal the body. So Peter and the other disciple left immediately for the tomb. It's interesting because some of the scholars say that the other disciples, all of them were there when, when Mary went to tell them. But only Peter and John ran to the tomb. Why the others didn't go, we don't, we don't, we don't know. They ran, I like John's description, they ran neck and neck. It's like a horse race. <laughs> Who's going to get to the tomb first? And they're running to find out what happened. Somebody has taken the body of Jesus. They ran neck and neck. The other disciple got to the tomb first, meaning John. But, <laughs> outrunning Peter, John stooping down to look in, he saw the pieces of linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. John, John's one of these guys, I, I, I liken myself to John. I, I could run to get there, but I'm not going in first. You want to go in first? You go right ahead, but I'm not going in there. You go check it out for me. I'm right behind you. 
You know, and Peter, he's this impetuous Peter. He runs on ahead, and he gets there. And what does impetuous Peter do? He runs right into the tomb. He's right in there. He's first in the lot. So they get inside. Simon Peter arrived after him, entered the tomb, observed the linen clothes lying there, and the kerchief used to cover his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but separate, neatly folded by itself. Now, read one more thing. The other disciples, the one who had gotten there first, went into the tomb. They took one look at the evidence and believed. How do you run into a tomb, look at the evidence, and immediately believe? It's always been a challenge for me. We talked about this in Sunday school. There were 75 pounds of myrrh, and I forget the other one, that was, there was other uh, spices, 75 pounds wrapped in this linen around the body of Jesus. So if you have the body of Jesus being wrapped, and around that wrapping, you have, in that wrapping, intertwined with that wrapping, you have 75 pounds of spices. Now, I know what it's like to have 75 pounds of wheat and oats and stuff like that. So you could have a couple of inches of spices intertwined, wrapped around the body of Jesus with these linen. When they went in and they looked at the cocoon, the cocoon, because those spices and that wrapping would not have collapsed, but would have been there just like it was around a body. They walked in and they believed. Now, they didn't believe in a resurrection because they didn't, they didn't have any concept of a resurrection. But they walked in and they immediately believed. And what did they find? The handkerchief that was been over the face of Jesus was not in that little shell, but was neatly folded beside it and laying there. They walked in and they immediately believed. See, and it's not just this event, but there's the account of Paul. There's the account of Paul meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. There's the account of the other disciples as we read on here in this chapter, how that they are on the road to Emmaus and and how that they saw Jesus and how that they recognized him. But they didn't, and then they did. It's like... Um... If, if you've ever been around someone who has, you know, whenever they die, they've gone through a very horrific illness long-term, and their body is just emaciated and changed. And then you walk into the funeral home, and you look at them and say, wow, they don't even look like the same person. We know that happens to us in a normal sequence of events. But as they remember Remember Jesus and his death and his scourgings, his beatings. They plucked out his beard. It means they grabbed hold of his face and ripped out his beard. They buffeted him. They punched him. They put a crown of thorns upon him, and they beat it down with palm branches. They ripped his body apart with the catty nine tails. And they hung him on the cross. And, I mean, here is this, this horrific picture of death. And they walk into this tomb, and they believe. 
John and the other disciple, Peter, what they do? They were stunned at what they saw, and they went home. But Mary, this is my favorite, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Mary stood out of the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she knelt, took a look into the tomb, and she saw two angels sitting there dressed in white, one at the head and the other at the foot of where Jesus' body had been laid. So here in the top of this cocoon of wrappings was an angel at the head and an angel at the foot. And Mary looks in, and there in that cocoon is nothing and two angels sitting on either end. They said to her, Woman, why do you weep? Why do you weep? One, one translation has, Why do you look for the living among the dead? It's like, what? I'm looking for Jesus. Why do you look for the living among the dead? I don't know where they've put him, she says. There's no thought, you know, there's some people have the conspiracy theory that Jesus really wasn't dead. He, he somehow got out of there and got back and recovered. The uh, other ones that they stole his body and, you know, they would have done that. But the Romans and, and the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders would have never allowed that to happen. They would have found it. And she says to these angels, I don't know where they put him. And after she said this, she turned away and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't recognize him. She stood there in the company of Jesus and didn't recognize him. Here we are on an Easter Sunday, being in church, being in this place of inspiration, and Jesus could be right beside us as it were in his spirit, and we not even recognize him because he didn't show up the way we expected him. If he doesn't come the way we expect, somehow we miss him. That's what happened to the Pharisees. That's what happened to the religious rulers and the leaders at the time. They were expecting Jesus to come a certain way. He didn't show up that way. He came on his own terms and his own way. She saw Jesus. She didn't recognize him. Jesus spoke to her. He said, woman, why do you weep? Who are you looking for? Jesus has a way of just asking these really stupid questions. He asked the blind man, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? It's like, uh, duh, Jesus, you know, he's blind, he wants to see. Jesus knows that. But sometimes what he's looking for is for us to say exactly what we have need of and give it to him. Jesus wants us to look at our life and say, God, you know all things, but my faith says, I believe you for this. And so, what are you looking for? She thinking him to be the gardener. Master, if you took him, he's telling, she's telling Jesus, if you took him, being the gardener, did you put him someplace else? Did you get him out? Did you unwrap all him, put him back, and put all those wrappings back in place? If you've taken him somewhere, tell me where he is so that I can take care of him. She's not lost that focus 
of trying to find him to finish the burial. She is so focused that she's got to bury him properly. She's got to wrap him up properly. And we put all those spices in place, but it's got to be done better. It's got to be done better. We've got to finish the task as quickly as possible so that we can do this and place him in the tomb the way that he should be placed in the tomb so that we have fulfilled our part. We've done our obligation. I have fulfilled my love for him and the other's love for him, the, the ladies, you know, that we've fulfilled our love for him and we've put him in place right. It's the least that we could do for this person that we thought was the Messiah. And Jesus says, what does he say? Jesus said to her, what's her name? Everybody just say, Jesus said to her, Mary. How does Jesus say your name? When he speaks to your heart in that still small voice, he says, David. You know, there was a certain way my mother would say my name. You know, I can still remember it. There's certain ways that you say your child's name, your loved one's name, that only you say it that way, and they hear it. God speaks our name to us. He speaks his name to us. He speaks our name to us. And he says, David. He speaks that name, and there's something inside of us that just... Yes. There's something inside of us that just pays attention. There's something going on here that's greater than, than what I understood and what, I, what I'm thinking. And he, Jesus says, Mary. And Mary recognizes Jesus. And everything lights up inside of her. It's, it's him. It's Jesus. And she clings to him. And, she's, and Jesus saying, hey, you know, I'm not, I'm not leaving just yet, you know. I'm not leaving just yet. I'm not ascending to the Father just yet. I'm going to be around for about 40 days. He didn't say that, but I'm going to be around for about 40 days. You don't have to hang on me. I'm still going to be here for a while. And Mary is just, she's ecstatic. I mean, she just, she just ecstatic. And and she, Mary Magdalene went to tell the news to the disciples, I saw the master. And she told them everything that he had said. And one other scripture I want to read is in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 through 7. John, the disciple, who is called the one that Jesus loved, John has been exiled for his testimony about Jesus to the Isle of Patmos. He knows Jesus as well as anybody. And he says, I, John, I'm writing this to the seven churches in Asia province. All the best to you from the God who is, the God who was, and the God about to arrive. And from the seven spirits assembled before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, loyal witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of all earthly kings, glory and strength to Christ, who loves us, who blood-washed our sins from our lives, who made us a kingdom priest for his Father forever. And yes, he is on his way, riding the clouds. He'll be seen by every eye, 
Those who mocked and killed him will see him. People from all nations and all times will tear their clothes and lament. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It is Jesus. (laughs) So John sees him again in heaven many years later, and he recognizes him. It's the same Jesus that you and I pray to. It's the same Jesus who speaks our name and calls to us, tells us that he loves us, gives us a hope of eternal life, forgives us of our sins, and lives within us forever. Amen? Shall we stand? Christ is risen. (laughs) He is risen indeed. How do I know he lives? He lives within my heart. Amen? And that is the hope of eternal life that holds us each and every day. And it is his spirit that speaks to our hearts and gives us hope beyond our doubts, beyond our fears, beyond our questions. Jesus isn't upset with questions. He's not upset with problems and doubts and all that. He continues to present himself. He speaks our name. In that still small voice, he speaks our name, tells us he loves us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He'll put our, he writes our name in his book of life, and we will live forever. Jesus, we thank you. You are the resurrection and the life. We confess our sins, O God, and ask for you to forgive us and live within our hearts. Our past is not as important as this moment in time in which you speak our name. We hear your voice, and we say, Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. You see, it's not our past. It's our present and our future that Jesus is concerned about. And Lord, we give to you our lives, we give to you our hearts, and we ask that this Easter season, this day of celebration of eternal life, May you touch our hearts, heal our woundedness, O Lord. Bring us close to you, we pray. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. God bless you. Happy Easter. Turn to someone and happy Resurrection Day.